Thank you. Uh, good evening. I am Jill Green. Uh, I am the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. I am honored to introduce tonight's speaker. Elaine Weiss is an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, The New York Times, and The Christian Science Monitor, as well as in reports and documentaries for National Public Radio and Voice of America. A McDowell Colony Fellow and Pushcart Prize Editor's Choice Honoree, she is also the author of Fruits of Victory, The Women's Land Army in the Great War. I was fortunate over the summer to hear Ms. Weiss speak uh, at the 53rd National Convention of the League of Women Voters of the U.S. in Chicago, Illinois, just a few blocks down from where the first League of Women Voters National Convention was held. What we heard was absolutely riveting and it reminded us that the challenges we face today, nearly 100 years later, are not insurmountable if we have the courage of our convictions. The Women's Hour is no ordinary history book. This harrowing tale of the final weeks before the ratification of the 19th Amendment is a timely reminder that democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy requires dedication and resilience and persistence. Democracy requires us not to look just to the past for inspiration, but to look forward and envision the world that we want to leave for our children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren. The League of Women Voters is approaching its 100 year anniversary and we are as committed as ever to carrying out the legacy left for us by the suffragists who fought tirelessly so that I can vote, so that my daughter can vote, so that you can vote, so that your grandchildren can vote, your granddaughters can vote. We hope you enjoy the story of how we came to be. Um, we have a table over by the front door for more information for uh, membership and I believe we're also doing voter registrations if you need to register to vote or update your registration. And it is my pleasure to introduce Elaine Weiss. Thank you. It's, it's, well, it's really a pleasure to be here. I, again, really special to be introduced and to be uh, doing this in conjunction with the League of Women Voters because this is their story. This is the origin story of the League of Women Voters. Uh, the National American Women's Suffrage Association turns into the League of Women Voters. So as you hear this, realize that this is how they came to be too. To bring the story, can everybody hear me okay? To bring the story to Harrisburg is also a real treat for me because Pennsylvania uh, played such an important role in the suffrage movement and it, it nurtured and was the home of many of the leaders of the movement. And I did research here in Harrisburg at um, Penn State Harrisburg Libraries in the Special Collections Library, the Alice Marshall Suffrage Collection. And so some of the uh, artifacts you're gonna see here are from there. And I spent a wonderful day uh, going through manuscripts and, and buttons and things that they have. So uh, I'm very pleased to bring the, the results back home to where um, I, had, I had done the research. So I'm gonna, this is a, can everyone see this uh, moderately well? Um, this is a, a sheet music uh, for the Pennsylvania um, suffrage movement rally march or something like that. And I just love that, that cover. It has the Liberty Bell right there. And here are some campaign pins for the 1915 
women's suffrage referendum. This was when the, this was in Pennsylvania, and this was when the question of whether women should be entitled to the most sacred right of democracy, the right to vote, uh, was being decided by Pennsylvania men. Now, of course, only men could decide whether women deserved the vote. So uh, these are the buttons in the uh, Alice Marshall collection. And I hate to tell you, but the answer then in 1915 was no. By an overwhelming majority, no. But through strenuous and brave effort, that answer changed by 1920. And the Woman's Hour, my book, is the story of that change and how that change happened, not only in Pennsylvania, but around the country. It's the story about how American women's demand for the vote, which was once considered crazy, radical, subversive, and impossible, slowly, slowly, and with great effort and sacrifice, came to be considered inevitable or almost inevitable, as you'll see. The fight for women's suffrage is really one of the defining civil rights struggles in our nation's history. We don't often think of it like that, but it is. Uh, it cuts to the heart of what democracy means. What do we mean when we say we the people? And when we say we are a democracy, who does get to participate in our government? And we're still asking those questions today, I would, I would venture to say. So the Women's Hour chronicles the explosive climax to this seven-decade struggle that comes down um, to a battle one hot summer in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's a political thriller. It um, has strong, complex women in the central roles, which is not really the usual um, cast of characters in, in political books. It's a tale of suspense with double crosses and chicanery and plot twists and betrayal. And if I've done my job, you'll forget that you know what happened. <laughs> or at least you think you know what happened. Um, if you're like me, and I'm not a suffrage scholar, I'm trained as a journalist, um, I had only the fuzziest idea about how women won the vote. And that active verb is really important. Women were not given the vote. They were not granted the vote. They had to fight for it, tooth and nail. And if you had any image at all about how women won the vote, it may match what mine was like. And, and this fuzzy image was that a bunch of women meet somewhere in upstate New York. It's called Seneca Falls, not quite sure where it is. And they're wearing hoop skirts and bonnets. And it's all very picturesque. And then fast forward, and there are some picket signs. And then poof, American men decide that they'll give their mothers and their sisters and their daughters the vote. And it's the march of progress, and it's the natural evolution of things, and the time has come. And no, that's not how it happened at all. It required three generations of fearless activists, black and white women, 
working over seven decades to finally, finally win the vote for women. And the culmination of that crusade, what we call the women's suffrage movement, comes down to this fierce six-week battle staged in Nashville that I tell in the book. So in the summer of 1920, when the, when the book takes place, one last state was needed to ratify the 19th <coughs> Amendment. And here's a nice picture. It shows um, woman being uh, buttoned up, and she says to Uncle Sam, Samuel, it's that last button. Can't get that last button. Um, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution would give all women in all states, in all elections, the vote. 35 states had ratified. Three quarters were required. There were 48 states at the time, so that meant 36 states were required. And Tennessee could be that 36th state. If the Tennessee legislature approved, ratified, the 19th Amendment, it would become the law of the land in time for the 1920 presidential election. If the amendment failed in Tennessee, it could be delayed indefinitely and perhaps not ratified at all. And those of us who've lived through the uh, ups and downs of the Equal Rights Amendment know that this is very possible, that it could fail to be ratified. By 1920, the suffragists had been fighting for over 72 years. Since that first outrageous meeting uh, where the demand for the vote was made by Elizabeth Cady Stanton at Seneca Falls. And there with her uh, on the podium was Lucretia Mott, the great Philadelphia abolition and women's rights advocate. And even those attending the meeting, even Lucretia Mott, who was really quite, quite considered a radical thinker for the time in the mid-19th century, urged her, urged Stanton, no, 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 don't ask for the vote. That's just too much. It'll make us seem ridiculous, she said. Um, and this is a Harper's Magazine uh, depiction of, of the Seneca Falls meeting. But there was a man in the audience who stood up and said, oh, here's Lucretia, um, with her Quaker bonnet, but she was quite a lion. She was quite an amazing woman. And so one man stands up to support Elizabeth Cady Stanton and says, no, you must demand the vote. It will never be given to you if you do not demand it. And that was Frederick Douglass, 30-year-old Frederick Douglass, just 10 years out of slavery. And he urged them to vote for this resolution demanding the franchise. And it barely, barely makes it, but it's because he uh, insists that the women be brave and, and sign up for this. So in the years since Seneca Falls, oh, the, the suffragists have had to um, mount over 900 state, local, and national campaigns to win the vote. And they've traveled hundreds of thousands of miles to do, as Susan Anthony said, organize, educate, and agitate in tiny towns and big cities all across the nation. And here we'll see some pictures of the suffragists on the move. <laughs> now, they had to change hearts and minds before they could change any laws. They had to convince women that they needed the vote. They're, they really were the original, she persisted. 
And it was a stupendous feat of organization. When you think of it, when the movement began in 1848 or so, passenger train travel was really new. There was no transcontinental train yet. The telegraph had only just been invented. There was no typewriter. There was no telephone. Even in 1920, there's no radio yet. And as one of the young um, uh, editorial assistants in my publishing house said when she, she read the manuscript, she said to my editor, I don't understand how these women did it without Facebook. <laughs> but they did. They held meetings and rallies, and they marched, which was not considered proper for a woman to do in public. Well, you have to march in public. So it wasn't considered uh, proper for her to do. They didn't wear pink pussy hats, but they did wear their white marching clothes. And here's some wonderful pictures. This is actually in Baltimore. This is in New York. This is in Washington. Now, sometimes they got a little carried away with their costuming here. <laughs> I really love that. Now, they endured contempt and ridicule in their communities, in their churches, and in the press. And here's some, some images of what the suffragists had to endure. They were pelted with rotten eggs and spoiled vegetables. They were attacked by mobs of angry men and boys. They were denounced as radicals, traitors, anarchists, bad wives and mothers, of course, and even Bolsheviks. And here are some really strong images. Which do you prefer, the home or the street corner for woman? Um, here's a <laughs> one of my favorites. Um, Mom goes off to vote, leaving dad holding the children. The apocalypse is coming. <laughs> this is, it's called election day. Here's another. When women vote. Um, <laughs> women are going to have to, prov uh, husbands provide themselves with new trousers out of their wives' old skirts. And you see again, he's holding the baby. Um, this is very scary stuff. Um, they are de uh, portrayed and derided as unattractive, you get the idea, unsexed she-men. And again, only old maids and, and ugly women would ever be involved in this. Uh, guess which one is supposed to be the suffragist? Um, it, they were pretty um, out there. They, <laughs> there were no uh, uh, subtleties in this message. Even the men who supported the suffragists were belittled as Nancys and Mabels. And clearly, suffrage was frightening. The idea that women would go out of the home and enter into the public sphere was very frightening. Uh, here's an idea of how frightening it was. This is called Bed of Trouble. Uh, you see the man cowering under the bed. Do we see a, a theme emerging here? I think, I think we do. So in their quest, let me see if there's another one. Here we go. In their quest for equal citizenship, the women of the suffrage movement employed a wide variety of stratagems and methods. And many of these, marches, demonstrations, picketing, acts of civil disobedience, um, sophisticated lobbying and public relations operations, 
and legal test cases would be adopted by civil rights campaigns in the 20th and 21st centuries. And if some of those sound familiar, it's because they were used in our lifetime. The suffragists were ingenious and fearless to test the prohibitions in state constitutions against women voting. The women of Vineland, New Jersey, attempted to vote in the elections of 1970 and 71. And then in 1972, Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth and about 150 other women actually voted in the 1872 presidential election. And here you see a cartoon. This is called The Woman Who Dared. There's Susan um, with her umbrella. And she is portrayed as this you know, rather fearless but fearsome woman. Um, she was soon arrested and put on trial and convicted of illegal voting in a federal election. She was uh, tried and, fi and fined. She d refused to pay the fine. And she went around New York State giving lectures where she asked the question, is it a crime for an American citizen to vote? And I would say we're still asking that question today. Um, failure of this voting experiment where they tried to just test the law led to Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton drafting uh, the language of what would be a constitutional amendment. It was introduced into Congress in 1878 and it was stalled there for 40 years. And every year the suffragists would go up and testify and Elizabeth Cady Stanton described it that she would be giving her testimony, reading from her testimony, and the senator in charge of the committee would be clipping his fingernails and sharpening his pencils and reading the paper and doing anything but listening to her. And she had to restrain herself, she said, from throwing the manuscript at his head. She got so angry. The amendment was voted down in committee around the floor of Congress 28 times. Meanwhile, the suffragists worked for suffrage in the states because the states can uh, give suffrage to its citizens. Uh, that's why uh, we have different, slightly different uh, voting laws in the different states. But Pennsylvania was a very active suffrage state and was home, as I said, to many in the movement. Lucretia Ma, of course, from Philadelphia, the National Association President, Anna Howard Shaw, known as a great orator, lived in Moylan, outside of Philadelphia. Bryn Mawr President M. Carrie Thomas was a suffrage leader. Soon to be Pennsylvania First Lady Cornelia Bryce Pinchot, very active in the movement. Alice Paul received her education at Swarthmore and University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then other Pennsylvania suffragists like Dora Lewis in Philadelphia and um, uh, Carolyn Katzenstein also joined Alice Paul in that more radical wing of the movement. And Pennsylvania became the site of some of the most innovative strategies and stunts, really, if you want to call it. At the 1876 Centennial Fair in Philadelphia, celebrating the nation's uh, first hundred years, suffragists used the occasion to protest the lack of liberty for American women. Susan B. Anthony crashed the official opening ceremonies. She 
marched up to Independence Hall, stormed onto the stage, and began distributing her Declaration of the Rights of the Women of the United States. And it was a litany of the ways American women were prohibited from being full citizens. And it included an articles of impeachment for the national officials. And she, she goes down why they should be impeached. Interesting model. Um, then she marched outside and mounted a bandstand and read it aloud to a very large and appreciative crowd. And Pennsylvania continued to develop a sort of suffrage ecosystem with multiple suffrage societies uh, uh, appealing to different constituencies. So there was the College Equal Suffrage League and the Equal Franchise League of Philadelphia. And then there was uh, county and city suffrage associations all across um, the state. Then of course there's the state association and there was a men's suffrage league. And so here we're gonna see a few pictures. Here is a convention of the Pennsylvania Suffrage Association. Whoops, here is, whoops. Here's a program from uh, I believe the 1916 uh, Suffrage Association meeting. And then in 1915, there was a suffrage referendum and we saw some of those buttons. Um, and this was uh, supposed to be a, the great breakthrough. It was going to be a referendum simultaneously in four eastern states and some of the major uh, population states in the country. So it was in New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania launched one of the most colorful campaigns. One of the things they did was um, a rich woman benefactor um, paid for the, a foundry to create a replica of the Liberty Bell. Here, well, here's again part of the, um, part of the campaign Women are citizens, and this is why they need to vote. So there's lots of explanatory literature that's um, distributed across the state, but then they have this great PR uh, object, the Justice Bell. Again, it's the Liberty Bell without the crack. <laughs> and it's inscribed on the bell. It says, establish justice proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof, all the inhabitants thereof. And the bell's clapper was chained so it couldn't ring, which symbolized the silence that women were forced to endure by not having the vote. And it was put on the back of a pickup truck and carried through all 67 counties of the state, over five thousand miles in this campaign. And here's some great pictures of it being carried around. Here's one. Again, women would give, give speeches from the back of the truck. Here it is again. I think this is in uh, Cumberland County. You, again, you see a woman at the truck and lots of men listening because it's only the men who can vote. Here's a little girl posing with the justice bell. Here this is in Selena. And of course, there was also an anti-suffrage campaign. 
and there was organized opposition, and this is the kind of advertisements you'd see. Pennsylvania Association opposed to women's suffrage. Um, it's going to, women's suffrage means higher taxes and jury duty. Women couldn't uh, serve on juries. And the anti-suffragists thought that was just fine. They didn't think it was proper for women to be on juries. So there's no woman ever ha who was tried ever had uh, a jury of her peers. She could not bring suit she could not testify in many states in a court of law. So this is the sort of things they were, they were talking about. And um, the SUFs knew they had to appeal to male voters. And so they used, and, and this is the first time I've actually found this document, which I love. This is Mr. Baseball Fan. Fred Clark, manager at the Pittsburgh Pirates, comes from Kansas where women vote, and says Fred, woman suffrage, as I have seen it, has a good batting average and mighty few marks in the error column. Give Pennsylvania women a chance to score, vote yes on women's suffrage. Uh, I just love that. That was, you know, this was, they knew their audience. Well, the women's suffrage referendum, despite all of this very extraordinary campaigning, and the campaigns in the other states were equally impressive, was defeated in all four states by a very wide margin. So by this time, the suffragists were getting frustrated and the pace of progress was so slow and whenever they thought they might break through, something like this referendum defeat made them think of another strategy. And one of those strategies was Alice Paul, the young Quaker from uh, in Philadelphia, who said, um, I'm tired of waiting, I'm going to demand the vote, and I'm going to go out into the streets and demand it, not just a march, but a protest. And so her women's party, um, let's see, we did this right. Her women's party begins, um, oh, and this is how, this is how Pennsylvania voted in that referendum, so you see, the, the, the black was ones that did not vote for suffrage and those were the more populous areas. So they begin to pick at the White House and you see some of the signs. Mr. President, how long must we wait for liberty? And here is a delegation of Pennsylvania women about to board the train to go to Washington to picket. They're members of the Women's Party Hundreds of women's party suffragists were arrested on bogus charges like uh, blocking the sidewalk because of course they were just uh, exercising their First Amendment rights. They served time in jail for their civil disobedience. They were held in decrepit, vermin-infested cells. Here's one of the suffragists behind bars. They were physically assaulted. They were clubbed tied to the wall, not allowed to read or write or even speak to one another. They communicated by singing. And this was all because they were demanding the vote. And when they refused to eat, they were force-fed, tubes rammed down their noses. Philadelphia's Dora Lewis, here she is being escorted from the jail after she's been released, and she's weak from a hunger strike. And here's, here's this very moving picture of her being um, helped out. 
And when they were released, they toured the country in copies of their prison uniforms um, on something called the Prison Special. So they had a, a seamstress kind of recreate their prison uniforms, and they went around the country for a month in this railroad car giving speeches and having, holding rallies and explaining to people what was going on and why they, as American women, had been imprisoned for demanding their rights. Finally, in June of 1919, after the First World War was, was over, the 19th Amendment won approval from both houses of Congress and was sent to the states for ratification. And just a few weeks later, on June 24th, the Pennsylvania legislature met here in Harrisburg, just a few blocks away, and ratified the 19th Amendment. And pro-suffrage legislators broke into song on the chamber's floor. And the president of the Pennsylvania Suffrage Association was invited to speak to the chamber right there in the spot. It was the first time a woman had been invited to speak to the legislature. So it was a very special moment. And here is Governor Spruill, who is a strong supporter of women's suffrage, signing the ratifi ratification documents and speeding them to Washington. So a year later, in the summer of 1920, the amendment was on the cusp of victory. 35 states had ratified, and um, it comes to Tennessee. But the suffragists are very nervous about it being decided in Tennessee. It was a bad place to have this final decisive battle. Nearly all the other southern states had already rejected the 19th Amendment on the same racist grounds that it would allow black women to vote. And the suffragists knew they faced an uphill battle in Tennessee, but they had no choice. It was their last best hope. So all the forces for and against suffrage gather in Nashville. And the campaign general, generals arrive. National Suffrage Association President Carrie Chapman Catt arrives from New York to lead the mainstream suffragists. She's a, she's, by the way, the, the hand chose, she's a protege of Susan B. Anthony, hand chosen to lead the movement into the 20th century. Then there's the young Tennessee um, more radical suffragist. She's that third generation. She's impatient. She's tired of waiting. And uh, Sue White comes back to her home state to lead the Women's Party campaign for ratification in Tennessee. And then there's Josephine Pearson, who's the leader of the Tennessee anti-suffragists, who promised her dying mother that she would fight the scourge of women's suffrage if it ever reached her home state. And so she's very, she comes from her home in, in southern Tennessee to protect her state from what she calls the feminist peril. And they're joined there by more than a thousand women and men from across the state, around the country. There's suffs, there's aunties, there's governors and senators who show up, corporate lobbyists. Um, they're all there entering the fray because there were powerful forces at work against ratification in Tennessee. Political, corporate, and ideological foes, each with their own reasons for opposing the amendment, many of whom had mo mobilized in Pennsylvania uh, five years before. There were politicians who feared an unpredictable new voting bloc. There were 27 million women who would be eligible to vote. No one knew how they were going to vote. And the politicians were really nervous about it. 
clergymen who believed that women voting went against the will of God and God's plan because he had made Eve to be subservient to Adam. And any demand that this be different was not biblically justified. And so they used biblical arguments to um, uh, argue against suffrage. And then there were corporations who believed that women voting would be bad for business. The textile manufacturers didn't want women to vote because they feared that if mothers were voting, they would want an end to child labor. And the manufacturers depended on child labor for cheap labor. So they didn't want women anywhere near the voting booth. The liquor industry feared that women, even though prohibition was in effect in the summer of 1920, they feared that women voters would want to enforce the prohibition laws. They were hoping they'd just kind of be ignored. So they also didn't want women um, voting. And the liquor lobby sponsored a speakeasy in the Hermitage Hotel across from the State House in Nashville in which they dispensed free liquor morning, noon, and night to the legislators um, to convince them not to vote for, uh, for ratification. And so there are these wonderful scenes of this legislators just like bouncing off the walls. They're dead drunk and they have to be thrown into the showers before they can go to, uh, to vote. So that's uh, called the Jack Daniels Suite in, in honor of Tennessee's favorite whiskey. So there were, but the most passionate foes of ratification of the 19th Amendment were women. Yep. That women would be opposed to the enfranchisement of their own sisters was really a shock to me. Some of these aunties, as they were called, or antis, were sophisticated, well-educated women. But, uh, and some of them will surprise you, like the muckraking journalist Ida Tarbell from Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. Um, she did not believe women should be able to vote. Uh, and here's one that always shocks Eleanor Roosevelt. She's not an anti-suffragist, but she is not a suffrage supporter. She didn't know how she felt about it, she said. Um, she was a, a young, nervous mother of five children whose husband was running for higher office, and she just didn't know what her place was. Now, she changes her mind very quickly, um, and right after ratification, she joins the League of Women Voters and is tapped by Carrie Catt and begins her uh, political education. But there were lots of women who were social and religious conservatives who really believed that suffrage would bring about, about a profound and unhealthy shift in gender roles. It would endanger the American home and bring about the moral collapse of the nation. So it would alter private life, not just public life. And this is an important reminder that the debate over women's suffrage was never uh, just a political argument. It was also a social and cultural, and for some people, a moral debate about women's role in society. And it was really a precursor to what we call the culture wars. And it has all those emotional layers uh, that, that, that make it very complicated. And here's one of my favorite broadsides of the anti-suffragists. It's actually in the book. It's called America Once Feminized, 
and it has uh, the rooster, uh, the, the, the hen is walking off the nest with her votes for women sash, and the rooster calls after her and says, Ma, the eggs are going to get cold. And she calls back, Sit on them yourself, old man. My country calls me. And the, the one of the taglines is, A vote for the federal amendment is a vote for organized female nagging forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, all sides are there in Nashville, and it gets pretty wild. There are bribes, and booze, and propaganda, and blackmail, and conspiracies, and kidnappings, and fistfights, and betrayal, and courage. And the newspapers call it suffrage Armageddon. And the outcome remains in doubt until the very last moment. And I won't spoil it for you, but, um, it does come down to a single vote of conscience by the youngest member of the legislature who receives a letter from his mother. <laughs> now, all this took place almost a century ago. But I think you'll find that The Woman's Hour is a book of history with surprising, perhaps even unnerving, modern themes. It helps explain where we've been, but also where we are today. It deals with topics that dominate our headlines right now. Voting rights and voter suppression, women's rights, inequality, dark money in politics, the role of religion in public policy, and racism. Because the history of suffrage in America is inevitably a story about race. In Nashville, there are cries of white supremacy, here's some of the anti-suffrage literature, and states' rights. The Ku Klux Klan is invoked as a dog whistle, and the Confederate flag is waved in defiance. This is anti-suffrage headquarters. And we've certainly been hearing echoes of all that again recently. And oh, did I mention, the whole story unfurls in the midst of a bitter presidential campaign, where the campaign slogan for the Republican candidate, who's a pretty famous or notorious womanizer, who is being blackmailed by one of his mistresses and has had to pay hush money to keep her quiet. <laughs> and his campaign slogan is, America first, Warren G. Harding. <laughs> so I submitted the manuscript for this book on the day before election day, 2016. Yeah, I pushed the button um, and uh, it flew through the ether, that's how you send books these days, into the inbox of my editor and my agent in New York, and they wrote back, hurrah, great timing. Well, we thought it was great timing, but in fact, it, it turns out it was probably more timely than we could ever have imagined. Um, by the next evening, as you know, the national landscape had changed, and in the months that have followed, the national psyche has changed. And this story I wrote about activist women's long fight for democracy has really taken on layers of meaning I could not have anticipated. This story of ordinary women, grassroots activists, taking to the streets and demanding change really assumes new resonance as millions of women and men and young students 
take to the streets and join marches to protest government policies today. And this tale of women standing up and demanding that their voices be heard and that their complaints be taken seriously echoes loudly as women stand up to say, me too, and time's up. And all of this was not in my horizon. And this history of citizens fighting for their rights enters a new dimension as rights we assumed were secure, voting rights, citizenship rights, press freedom, women's rights, appear to be endangered again. There are important lessons, I think, to be learned from the fight for women's suffrage. Persistence is the main one. The social change is slow and political change is hard. And the struggle to expand our democracy is ongoing. It wasn't won in 1920, it's still not won completely. And reform movements are imperfect. The story of women's suffrage is inspiring, but it's also a cautionary tale. It's complicated, it's messy. There are moral compromises made for success. The suffragists are willing to leave their black sisters behind. And I hope that the story that I tell in the Woman's Hour will teach a new generation that protest is patriotic and necessary, but it must be followed up by well-designed and sustained political strategies. The suffragists didn't just march and picket and demonstrate. They also debated and lobbied and drafted legislation. The vote is a prayer, Carrie Catt wrote to the women of America when the 19th Amendment was finally secure. The vote is power. And today, our job is to protect the vote for all citizens the way the League of Women Voters is doing right now. And it's our sacred duty to use that vote in every election to improve our democracy. And that's the lessons I derived from the suffragists, and I hope you'll enjoy reading about them. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? We're going to have questions, right? Yes, Alice? we're going to open up to audience Q&A. If you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll walk around with the mic. Yes. Do you know what happened to the bell? Oh, the bell. No, I don't. Do you? Does someone know? Yeah. I hope it's in a museum. Sorry, that's a good idea. Um, it's in Valley Forge. They Great. they located it there, and so you can visit it uh, if if you get down that way. Terrific! Thank you so much. Uh, Great question. Yes, hi. Thank you. Um, of course, you you describe a long fight for the uh, for the final successful votes. But how do you see links to World War One and mm -hmm. and the success of the uh, the ratification. Oh yeah, World War I plays a really large role. Um, I talk about it a lot in the book. Um, women took on roles that they'd never done before. Um, and, and I wrote my first book about an organization called the Women's Land Army where they took on the farming for the men here in Pennsylvania and around the country. And so they, they entered into um, a kind of service that they had never uh, been asked or allowed to do before, men's work as they called it. 
And so, um, th and they did this, many of these were suffragists, and they did this with the express uh, desire to, to be patriotic, but also to prove their citizenship so that it would be much harder for Congress or the President to say, you do not deserve the vote. So World War I plays a pretty pivotal role, uh, uh, both in England, where women get the vote in 1918, and, and in America, uh, and in Canada. But in, <laughs> in Britain, they just celebrated their, um, their centennial of suffrage, but you'll notice when they describe it, it says, some women won the vote. And look at that and say, hmm, that's a kind of funny construction. Well, that was because only women who were landowners and over 30 years old won the vote. And I thought, 30 years old? I mean, you are mature before you're 30, I hope. Well, I don't know, my kid's getting there. <laughs> but, um, but the reason was um, England had lost, Great Britain had lost a million men in World War I. And so if they felt if they uh, enfranchised all women over 21, it would be this huge imbalance. And so it's another decade until women uh, 21 get, get the vote. So that's the reason. But yeah, World War I plays a big role. Question. Uh, thanks for your speech. Uh, I would like to have your, uh, listen about your views on to the contemporary world of like, uh, this was uh, where the, uh, we have a step into the inclusivity of women. Mm -hmm. uh, years back, we had the step for the inclusivity of uh, blacks, and there is a progressive trend, and we have been inclusivity of all gender, uh, uh, where the gender is not just men and women. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, like from last five years or last six years, or maybe from 2014-ish, uh, around the globe, there is a counter uh, trend, I feel, uh, like uh, the borders, I mean, in, in not in terms of the political boundaries of a nation, but in terms of the cultural boundaries mm -hmm. are, I feel like it is a bit getting, uh, getting a little more orthodox and conservative around the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like there is a counter current, or l I would like to have your views on that. Thank well, you. There's, there's often in history, there is uh, progress, and then there's pushback. And um, one of the reasons the suffragists were so anxious to get the ratification sewn up before the 1920 election is they saw, and I think, uh, and they were accurate, that the nation was swinging into a more regressive and reactionary mode. Um, after years of the progressive era and then World War I, they were sick of foreign entanglements, and so they were becoming much more isolationist. Warren Harding wins the election with women's votes. They vote for Warren Harding. Does this teach us something? Um, but they, uh, but Warren Harding is also against the League of Nations. He doesn't want America to be involved in an international governmental body. So, um, and the suffragists think, if we don't get it now, if we don't get it this summer before the election, we may not get it for decades. And I think they were right. So that's why there's this enormous, enormous push. And they see this, this reaction coming, and it does come. So I think historians will tell you this is a natural kind of cycle, uh, especially when people feel threatened in some way. So I'm afraid that um, uh, th the good news will probably swing the other way, but not soon enough. <laughs> More questions? Mm -hmm. Anyone? Maybe another I'll question. get the front row, and then we'll go back there. 
First, thank you so much thank you. for doing this and sharing this. I'm curious who or what inspired you to go on this journey, and also how long was your journey? Well, um, that's a really good question. I was, I was researching something else, which often happens. Uh, I was researching um, how the suffrage movement was a, a particular benefactor, and uh, she'd given money uh, to the suffrage movement in 1914. And when I was in the Library of Congress and, and how the money was spent was uh, part to establish the League of Women Voters, part for um, the um, publicity and lobbying um, uh, offices in Washington of the suffragists during World War I, and then the other was the ratification campaign, and I came across the story of what happened in Tennessee, and I said, wow, this is quite a story, and, and from there I could, I could tell the whole story. And um, it was quite a journey because it, it really this great American story that we just haven't learned uh, very much. There's scholarly work, but there's not a lot of popular work. And, and I'm not sure if um, uh, this was spoken about, and, and this is kind of new news, but um, um, about a month after, six weeks after the book came out, I got a call that Secretary Hillary Clinton had read the book and really enjoyed it and thought it was an important story to bring to the public in an even larger, um, wider, more accessible way. Not to say the book isn't accessible. So um, we met in New York, and um, she has now um, agreed. She is the executive producer of a, uh, it's going to be a limited TV series, uh, probably in, in 2020. And she's never done this before. I've certainly never done it before. And so we are working with Steven Spielberg's Amblin partners, and um, we're starting to put it together. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's to tell the story of persistence, uh, of what it takes, of what it took, of how hard it was, and you cannot take this for granted. Um, again, it landed in a... In a political time, I did not expect it to. I thought it was things were gonna be very different when I handed it in on the day before election day. Um, but this shows us a bit of a roadmap about how, how we have to stand up and protect our democracy in all different ways. So, um, so maybe it was fortunate, not, not, not what happened, but that uh, the book comes out at this time, sometimes I, kind of wish I would, I would give it all. But um, <laughs> it, it is a, a time when it, I think people are receptive to the story. Um, and you know why it hasn't been told more? Well, women's stories often aren't, but this one has just not been told in a, an engaging way, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell it with characters and with story. And uh, one of my favorite uh, notes from readers that I get is, Gee, towards the end, I really got nervous. <laughs> I thought, okay, good, good, because I had to make you forget that you knew what happened. So um, you live, you know, you live this this uh, challenge with the suffragists, and and then you, in flashback, learn, you know, why it came came to be like this. So I think it is an important story for us, uh, for men and women, um, but especially at this moment. So um, I'll be I'll be working in a slightly different way to bring it bring it to a larger audience. We had another question over here. 
Thank you. Uh, first, I want to echo the previous questioner in terms of your narrative. I thought even this evening what you presented and how you presented it was great. Thank great, you. Great for me, at least. Thank you. Um, I guess I want to go back to uh, the, the last three, four years of the successful ratification. Uh -huh. um, obviously, the story is probably state by state in the organizing of each of the states. Mm -hmm. uh, but is there some, uh, I mean, I'm thinking that Wilson was sort of preoccupied and, and I'm, I'm wondering how he, what his uh, view was of the of the of the uh, general impetus towards mm -hmm. suffrage. But uh, were there other larger forces yes. uh, that that, um, that yeah. uh, pushed towards the success of the ratification? Yeah. Well, you mentioned one World War One. Um, yeah, Woodrow Wilson plays a big role in the book. He, at this time, he's paralyzed. Um, he's had a stroke. And he is not administering the nation. His wife is. Um, and his wife, Edith, is a rabid anti-suffragist. She really does not think women should vote. And she gets especially uh, unnerved when Alice Paul begins picketing the White House and burning her husband in effigy. Um, so there, there's this very interesting internal, in the White House drama going on. Um, but luckily, President Wilson's secretary, uh, Tumulty, is actually a suffragist uh, supporter. So he kind of maneuvers to get the president. The president is improving at this point, but he's not, he's not well. So, um, so yes, there's, there's lots of forces, and a lot of them having to, to do with the, out, out co the coming out of the war. There's a depression. Uh, the railroads are coming out of national nationalization. There's railroad strikes. There are race riots all over America in 1918, uh, 19, 20, 21. Terrible race riots. Lynchings are on the rise. So um, I do set the book, and, and all these things are happening, um, and they all affect. They all affect suffrage. Suffrage isn't. We often see it in this little silo, like it's just women's suffrage, and it happened in a vacuum. Well, no, it didn't. All these things really play a big role, and that's what I hope to do in the book by weaving all this together. So yeah, we have, I have these really amazing um, uh, scenes of Wilson in the White House uh, at Paralyzed, and uh, no one's supposed to know this, so when he's wheeled out, um, you know, he's in the wheelchair and he has a, a cloak around him so no one can see his left side is, is paralyzed. So yeah, there's, there's some powerful scenes. I was able to see the, the uh, journal of his physician, so I know what was going on. Yeah. We have time for just two more questions. Could you compare and contrast uh, to the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment? Well, um, what I can say, you know, again, uh, the, the suffragists fear that this might not get ratified was, was not unfounded, they knew that. Um, the Equal Rights Amendment was introduced in Congress in 1923 by Alice Paul and Sue White, that young woman you see up there who goes to get her law degree in the three years intervening, and Crystal Eastman, they all have law degrees, all three women. They draft the legislation, it's based on the, the 15th Amendment, and um, it gets introduced, and it's, it's not still there, it's just not ratified. But it also was not, uh, women did not uniformly support it. The suffragists, many suffragists, including Carrie Catt, including Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, who then does become a women's rights advocate, 
did not want an equal rights amendment at all because they thought it would undercut some protective legislation that they had worked so hard to get for women in industry, like hours they could work, night shifts, how much they could lift. So, so the labor, labor uh, movement was totally against the Equal Rights Amendment. So we think of it as this, you know, it's what women have wanted. It wasn't. It was very controversial. Uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt continued her opposition to it uh, until she died. So, um, you know, I think it's a necessary thing. I think we need to have that in the Constitution because uh, a lot of the, the progress we've made can be rolled back and we're seeing how that can happen. Um, but Congress would have to, um, I think one more state has to ratify to get to 38, which is the three quarters, but then Congress would have to agree to extend the deadline because there was a deadline. So it's complicated. Uh, but certainly there are there are parallels. But uh, I don't want you to think that the ERA was was something that everyone stood up and saluted because it wasn't. Do we have one more question in the second row? Uh, you had mentioned the decision to kind of go away from the black sisters. Could you f flesh that out a bit? Mm. That's a big part of the book. Um, and basically, the suffragists were being political. I mean, there were, there were definitely racist suffragists, just as there were many racist anti-suffragists. But not all were. And, but they also saw that in order to get um, the racist Southern delegations in Congress to vote for suffrage, for, for the 19th Amendment, and then having to take it to every Southern state, to, for ratification, they had to make arguments that we would find uh, really unappealing and, and uh, totally racist now. Uh, but they saw it as the only way. They really felt that all, all uh, boats would be lifted eventually. If all women got the vote, then they could, they could manage to get black women the vote. But of course, once 19th Amendment is ratified, no one fights hard enough to make sure that black women, it wasn't the 19th Amendment that's at fault. That says all women in every state. It's the way it was administered in the, in the southern states by southern legislatures. So, um, you know, it's not the, the blame of the 19th Amendment. It's how the Jim Crow states administered it. Black women in, in the North could vote. So, uh, but, that said, I don't believe that enough was done to scream and yell and make sure that all women could vote. But that was America at that time. So right now we see disenfranchisement, in other words, by um, the kind of suppression techniques that many states are imposing. And that's how we have to, that's our responsibility to fight now. So I go into it in a lot more detail. It, it, it's a very complicated and long, you know, uh, suffrage and abolition are, are sibling movements. They grow out of each other. Uh, the women we think of as uh, the foremothers of, of suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony, are abolitionists before they are suffragists. So uh, it's a very close uh, but a very uh, complicated relationship. And so that's, that's part of the theme of the book. Can we give a huge round of applause for Elaine Weiss? Thank you.